everyone, and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined by writer Alan Bissett. Hello, Alan. Hello, Alistair. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you. You know, I was thinking, I was looking back through previous podcasts when the last time you would have been on, and it was when you read Thrawn Janet for the Robert Louis Stevenson Strange oh, Tales things that we did with the ESLS, which was, was a long time ago, back 2013, I think. That's right, that was the last time we did something. Is that how long ago that was? 2013? Uh, I remember being on one of your early podcasts right back when you were starting out. I can't remember what book I had. Maybe Adam Spark. I maybe had out at that time. I'm not even sure of the year, but I do I remember. I tell you the year because I checked that as well. It was number five. It was the fifth podcast we did and it was back oh. in 2011. Oh, wow. Ten years. Wow. Ten years, yeah. yeah. So what would that, I would have had Death of a Ladies Man out by that point. Pac Man came out in 2011, so it would be that. It would be that book. I think that was that's what it was, yeah. And I can remember it well because this shows how time has passed. We kind of fanboyed out over the fact that the end of one of the Marvel films, you saw Thanos for the first time, and we were so excited. <laughs> that, that, that was a big moment in my life. Absolutely, me too. I, to be honest, that is probably one of my top three favourite moments I've ever had in a cinema ever. And I think you might have felt the same. I did, absolutely. But that shows you how long it's been. You think of all the Marvel movies that there has been since then. That would have been right about the time of the first Avengers movie. Yeah. He was in at the end of the first Avengers movie. That would have been it, yeah. It feels like a very different world now. (laughs) Doesn't it just... But you're back with your latest uh, uh, piece of fiction, your latest book, novella. Uh, lazy Susan. Um, so the first question is there, is there, yes, and I have as well my copy here, well-thumbed by now, copy here. And there's a reason it's been, it's well-thumbed, but we'll talk about that in a moment. So, but if you yeah. tell us a bit about Lazy Susan, uh, the book, and also Susan, the character. Well, it's a novella, first of all, so it's not a full-length novel. Um, basically, speculative books. Uh, they published the Boyer Monologues scripts couple of years ago and they said uh, we'll give you a, a, a better royalty rate if you write a novella for us that we can bring out in uh, last year and I was like oh I quite like that challenge because not only did I get a better royalty rate but actually to have a, a deadline and a contract to force me to produce a work of fiction it was nice to have that stimulus again um, and I also thought well I can, it's been a while since I've written a novel quite 10 years actually back then was the last novel and I really wanted to write one again, but I thought, oh, everything that's happening, can I really fit in a novel? Because uh, things are fairly chaotic than who as they are for a lot of people. Um, and I thought, well, a novella I can probably do. And once that was happening, I needed to fill it with something. And this character, I'd been out in the, the, on the road touring Moira, making notes just on trains and different places I go and, you know, characters that you see, you know, stuff that writers do when, whenever they're, traveling and um, I sat down and I looked at all these notes and they started to cohere um, and the character is Susie herself you know what I mean once I've got the voice of a character that's it I'm yeah. away and that's been the case with every one of my books the voice is always the key and as soon as she started talking boom that, that thing appeared in a blinded flash of light and I've not had a writing experience as enjoyable as that for quite a long time that's what you're in it for I think you can tell that you enjoyed writing it because you certainly, I'd certainly enjoy reading it. And as you say, it's a novella, but that in a way is deceptive because I don't know how much you want to give away about the structure of the book, but 
the way it works worked brilliantly. I mean, you you say what you want to say about it. Well, um, I did have a conversation with speculative when we were talking about how to, you know, describe this book to people. And uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's a book about a Scottish working class Hollywood likely character, a party girl, an optimist. You know, she's she's at the peak of her, her youth. She's having a great time in her life. Um, and I, I really wanted to write about a character, especially partly as a means of escapism from lockdown for myself, you know, imagining her at loads of parties. And then uh, the structure revealed itself. And I didn't want to say too much about the structure because usually structure's a bit of a boring conversation for people. Because structure is something when you read a novel, you experience it invisibly. Yeah. If the book is well structured, you don't even notice the structure. You're cast along in the spell of it. But books have to be well structured underneath that or the whole thing falls apart. So when you try to say to people it's got an interesting structure, they go, really high. <laughs> but in this case, structure is key. Yeah. Um, and you, you will notice the way it's structured pretty quickly and it changes your perception of the book in all sorts of radical ways um, when you go through things in a certain way. Is all I'm going to say. So I'm not going to give too much away, but there is a, a surprise in store here. I understand that. What you'd say is you it does um not just allow for but actually encourage multiple readings in different ways, isn't it? I mean, you're really kind of uh, there's a lot going on in this apparently kind of slight uh text. Um how did you you're saying about that voice and once you get the voice, I think that's right if all your novels, but all, also your theatre work in this. Did, has your theatre work kind of um, influenced this book, do you think? Well, it's difficult to know where my, my prose work influenced the theatre and where the theatre work influenced the prose, but I haven't written an extended piece of prose for quite a long time, 10 years, and in that time I've written a lot of scripts. Yeah. Um, maybe 20, 24 scripts, something like that, right? Um, in different formats. And you learn certain things, which is you need a, an immediacy. Because if you are inviting people into a theatre, you need them to think about absolutely nothing else except what's going on on stage. Because if they're going, oh, what time's the bus home? I need to, what, 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 if I get that bus there and get that bus, or um, oh, did I switch the oven off? You know what I mean? Then you failed because it'll be very difficult to get them back in. So the skills that you learn in order to be able to do that in theatre, I found I was transferring to this. So that there's a definite immediacy in this story. You, you you hit the ground running. You definitely do. You're right in there from the first line, I think. And actually the kind of um, a leanness of the story allows for that as well. It's set over a short period, 48 hours, I think. Mm. And uh, and there's a, there's a lot to get through, even in that short period of time. I mean, even moves around the country and, you know, lots of different characters and all of that thing. Aye. Um, did you find the structure of how you were going to write it, if you explained why you write as a, as a novella, was that quite a, a challenge to kind of fit all these ideas into this, I think it's 150-odd pages book, yeah? Um, it is quite packed with events, that's for sure, um, for a, a relatively short story. There are a lot of characters in it, and I think I, I, think I managed to juggle them well enough. Um, but... In terms of cramming everything in, the size really dictated. Once you've got, see, put it this way: see if you're writing a novel, a novel can be anything for over, let's say, forty 
thousand words to three hundred thousand words. Yeah. No, a, a relatively small canvas and an absolutely enormous camp. You know, look at um, a suitable boy by Vikram Seth yeah. or Lord of the Rings or or the Game of Thrones series, which are actually all really one story. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot. So a novel can be any of these things, but a novella can it? A novella, there's a line in front of you, and you're like, I can't really go beyond that line. So what that does is it makes the story into a manageable size in your head. And when you reach a certain word count, you go, right, I'd better start making all this cohere to a point run about this time, rather than, oh, I've got all this space, do I add another subplot here? How long do I drag this one out for? And it all ripples off in front of you infinitely. This one, you're just a bit like, it's like you're just shepherding the story to a, to a finishing line. It was, um, it didn't allow for sprawl or indulgence. Yeah. That's what I liked about the form. You know, That's why I wondered about the influence of theatre, because it feels to me like every line is, um, you know, needed and required. And, you know, there's no flab at all. You know, it actually, you know, get, I, you can, I can imagine this being adapted for a theatre performance quite easily. I don't know if you ever had that in mind. Well, it has been discussed, actually, to be honest, and there's also a film format, I think, would work, because you, you look at it, because obviously there's, there's stuff going on here which is very textual. It's about the text on the page, and you'll, you'll, you'll know, obviously, what I'm referring to. Yeah. The, the reading experience of it is very particular. And I thought, well, how do you take that and you transplant it into other forms? How do you make that work? And it forces you to think beyond the, the boundaries that these forms usually place on, on script writers or, or um, theatre makers or whatever and just start breaking shit. Because <laughs> I think the, the energy for this book came from the fact Here's, here's one of the reasons why I think this book feels the way it does. Because see, when you do theatre, and I love theatre, yeah. but especially when you do film, it's made by committee. Because you've got producers, you've got a director, you've got actors, and all these people feed into it creatively, and you're dependent upon them making good choices in order for your work to be represented well on stage. So there's this mutual, and, and also the, the actors are depending on there being a good script for them to say. Sure. But um, for want of a better term, power is contested. You need to be a good collaborator. But also if you think maybe you do know better, you need to say, actually, I think that's a bad decision that we're, that we're thinking about making here. But you also have to accept that some of your decisions might not be the right ones and that somebody else might be right. It's a very good way of working. Yeah. But it's no the way you write a novel. Uh -huh. or a novella, it's just you. That's really so interesting. Of one mind, and that's the only mind that creates the work. It was nice to go back to that. But I find that interesting having read it, because I think more than most, in fact, more of any of that can bring to mind, there is a contract going on here between writer and reader. And, you know, usually the reader is, for want of a better word, passive, but you're asking them to be active in a way you're asking them to, to kind of be involved in a way which is rare so there is a kind of a as you say you're maybe dri driving events but not completely aye that's true the, the reader is active in the book and actually every person who reads this book could potentially read a slightly different book 
because there are people who've read this book twice and I've said to them, well, what did you think of that bit? And they were like, oh, I missed that bit. Of course they did, because it's possible to miss bits the way it's structured. So the, the downside of that was that the, no everything that's in the book will be read by every reader. Yeah. And then there might be some layers or, or, or meanings or, or parts of the story that, are, that I see as integral that are missed. Um, but I, I was prepared to sacrifice that in order to, for, for people to experience the book in a different way than they've experienced other books. Um, or, or certainly grown-up books, because that what I'm borrowing for here is a format that I discovered in books that were written for children. Yeah, me too. Uh, taking that into the, the realm of the grown-up novel. Um, so... I it was it was an interesting it was an interesting way of going about things to be honest. So I didn't have to I didn't have to collaborate. I like collaborating, but it was nice not to have to do that. And the other freedom that I experienced was wasn't a commission. Now, when when you get to a certain stage in your career, sometimes people come to you and say, "We've got this idea. How do you fancy writing this?" And if the idea appeals to you, you go, "Actually, I, I would quite like to." You know, maybe a producer's got an idea and they're looking for a writer or a director or an actor even sometimes. And you're like, "Actually, I do like the look of that." Um, but with this one, I didn't have any, I didn't have to consult anybody about the subject matter. You know, it yeah. was, there was no rubric, there was no, this is the sort of thing that we want this to be. Now, it's, that's especially true in film because there's so much money at stake. The writer is essentially the, the servant of the producer. You know, it's it's all about what the producer wants. Some in some cases, the director, depending on who's got the, the you know who's who's the big industry name. Um, that's uh, the, but nobody cares who the writer is. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's the reality. Um, so it was nice to have just total freedom to write whatever I wanted, yeah. and this story is what came out. You know, but I think so, it's interesting that relationship. That okay, I think you're right. People well, they'll undoubtedly read this in very many different ways. But people read most books, I think, in maybe more subtly different ways. This time, it's that explicit thing that makes the reader think. It almost is like a psychological test where you decide how you decide to read this book. I think, which Aye, is something I haven't really uh, encountered uh, before. I don't think in that way. You know, I'm actually wondering if some some of that came for theatre. I hadn't really thought about this link before, but when I first went into theatre, some of the theatre that we seeing it specifically at the Arches was quite radical in terms of its relationship to the audience, yeah. sometimes quite confrontational. The audience would be brought into the show in ways that sometimes made the audience uncomfortable in order to make a larger point. Yeah. Um, and I think as long as the theatre makers did their job properly, the audience understood why they were being asked to be involved in the event. But the fourth wall, what I'm saying is, the fourth wall was broken all the time in theatre. Yeah. You only have to look at something like... Um, uh, the Chevy at the Stag and the Black Black Oil. Yeah. An example of that in the Scottish context. The audience are part of the show. Did the audience do a Kaylee as part of the show? They're invited to sing some of the songs. Panto is the same. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a, it's a basic in theatre, and not just radical theatre, traditional theatre as well. But it's no quite asked of uh, readers of prose. No, there's always a distant relationship between the reader of prose and the writer. And I had fun kind of dissolving that with this one. Yeah. And, you, you know, you said uh, Susie's described as a working class Holly Delightly for the influence of generation. So how much 
did you have to kind of research what the influencer generation was doing? Or did you feel that you were still in touch with a lot of the social the way people use social media and that kind of thing? Um, I've I've got a relatively distant relationship to social media. Um, and I, I, I did get very uh, into Twitter, especially during the independence referendum. I was on yep. Twitter all the time. And before that, Facebook, obviously, because that had been the big thing, but I left Facebook for, for Twitter, essentially. Um, and then I binned Twitter because it was taking on my life. And it was only with the start of lockdown that I got back onto Facebook again because I couldn't, that was the only way I could keep in touch with folks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I have noticed in the intervening time is that young people, the, the, the internet and social media is just so much part of the fabric of their life. Yeah, as with everybody to an extent, to an extent, but I think there is a layer of them that almost live online. You know, they're constantly documenting their life to show to people on Instagram, and I'm I'm, I'm not making a moral judgment. Oh no, it's just I, I didn't get it, but that's just how it is. You know, that's fine. That if that is what they enjoy, that's what they enjoy. Um, and and I, but I thought, what does that feel like? What is that like for that person? How does how does it feel to live like that? Um, and that's that line of questioning led to the character of Susie because that yeah. she is like that, yeah. constantly documenting things for Instagram, and almost presenting different uh, aspects of herself or different versions of herself depending which type of social media she is using. You know, her Instagram posts are very different to what she puts up on Twitter and then what she puts up on uh, other Facebook as well. Twitter's uh, for banter, essentially. Yeah. Um, Instagram is to make her seem glamorous and to show off all the places she's gone um, and to, to, you know, uh, show off her makeup and stuff like that. Facebook is for pals. And YouTube is for, she does makeup tutorials and she does Marvel reviews. Yeah. And the combination of these things is essentially is a, a, lot of, a lot of her life is directed towards these things. Because the fact is, right, she is a young... Scottish working class lassie who's come for nothing and hasn't got much. She's not got a you know a, a, a degree. She she probably didn't do very well at school. There's an awful lot of young people out there like that. What are their life chances? And she's like, well, do you know what? I'm funny. I really like talking about Marvel films. I think my makeup's quite good. Uh, why should I know? Let people know about these things and, and try and Get an audience. Yeah. Why not? What, what other life chances has she got? Uh, in order to maybe try, you know, make make what she would see as a, a really good living. Um, you know, she she maybe doesn't want to do a cleaning job or uh, well, actually, it turns out at the end of the book, you do find out what her actual day job is. Um, and we'll not talk about that too much because it comes at quite a contrast of. Uh, you know, our, our online uh, life. But I just thought that there could be a lot of fun exploring somebody whose life is online. Because actually it's kind of what we all do, you know, depending who we're talking to or depending who we're, you know, in company with, we kind of give slightly different versions of ourselves each time. I know, um, you know, what you, how you maybe presented yourself in the class was obviously very different from how you were in the playground and that carries with you almost throughout your life. And it made me think as well because... During this time, she's looking to party. She's looking for the best places to be, the best people to be with, how to have a good time. 
And that doesn't change. The stories don't change, just different ways of telling them. And I think aye. this is a really interesting way of telling it. Aye, aye, that's right. There's a different narrative for, the, for each social media platform, which puts a different spin on the events of the book. Um, I and also to be honest with you, it was a challenge for me. Right, sometimes I think you've got to challenge yourself because it's only when there's a potential you could get something very wrong, yeah, that you can actually get something very right. If there's no risk, there's no gain. So you have to maybe sometimes think, oh, I could form arse here, and maybe you will, you know, because what do you learn for that? Sometimes you need to fall on your arse and go, why did I fall on Mars? Oh, I never tie my shoelaces, you know, and that's that's how you learn. Um, and it was a challenge for me to write for the point of view of a 22-year-old lassie because I'm a 45-year-old man and the world a 22-year-old lassies and 45-year-old men very rarely ever meet mm -hmm. unless it's a, a relation in your family that you see at weddings and stuff like that, you know. You're, you're, you're not socially in the company. Uh, these, these two groups don't socialise very often is what I'm saying. Uh, and um, again, so, sorry, on you go. So I wanted the challenge to be able to think into another realm of, for wanting a better term, human human experience that isn't within my own immediate purview. But again, you know, the the, the even if you you were, you know, you had cousins or nieces or something like that at that age, they'll be presenting a very different version of themselves to the rest of the family, to the family gathering, <laughs> than they would to their pals and. And, the thing, and now, often with social media, sometimes those worlds cross over more than they maybe did previously. Aye, that is true. I, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky thing because when I was trying to think my way into who this person is and, and what she gets through social media and, you know, what her fundamental character is, she's actually trying to present herself on social media quite honestly. You know, there's the odd bit of like, oh, I'm at a party, I'll, you know, I'll stand next to somebody famous and, you know, all right, okay. But most of it is her just, she comes up with a random thought. Yeah. Don't, don't guys look stupid when they're wanking? You know <laughs> what I mean? Their faces look stupid. Sometimes you've got to try hard not to laugh because of the way their faces look. Absolutely. And she gets that random thought and she decides to put it on Twitter. Yeah, you know, there's an immediacy with it, whereas... You would never have had that before, unless you were in a group, a group of pals or whatever. But now aye. it's going out to to strangers, which is an interesting thing. Aye, aye, and, and but the way she's is, she's just showing the way she is in real life. She she does love Marvel films. She's not pretending, eh? You know, she's like, if I want to go on YouTube and talk about Marvel films, I can still do that and do makeup tutorials because I love makeup as well. So there is actually an, a, an honesty in what she's doing. She's no, she's no fake. No, you know, and that's why that's why I liked her. Uh, it would be too easy to to be cynical about it and write somebody who is just literally deceiving folk about what their life is actually like. Um, you know, she's no, she's not a hustler. No, you know, oh, no, absolutely. Just in the world. So now the book's been published and it's out there. How do you feel about it? I mean, it seems to me that people are delighted to to be reading it you know from what i've heard and the people i've spoken to who have how are you feeling about it because it must have been I, a big thing to do it after so long it was i and i was worried about whether or not i could still do it because it's been so long you know you, you you wonder if you might get you know performance anxiety you know <laughs> it's the big stage again and you're like oh shit the goals look so far away um, it's like going for a five side pitch to a, you know a big 12 side pitch you know you really need to up your game um, but I was up for that, 
and uh, I've been really pleased with how folk have received it. It's been the reaction's been great, to be quite honest with you. Obviously, because it's a novella published by somebody who's not released a book in ten years on a small Scottish independent publisher, its reach is, is going to be limited, right? I'm realistic about that. That wasn't the point of it. The point was to get me back in the zone of writing that kind of stuff again and to see if folks still wanted to read what I do and to see if they still liked it. And the reaction's been so positive and I really needed it. I needed yeah. it. See if I'd released this and folk would have been a bit like, aye, all right, you know, very good. That that was probably it then, you know, because that then put you think, oh, well, maybe I can't do this anymore, you know, and you just bin it. So I've been incredibly relieved. And relieved enough that you're going to maybe do some more? Are you possible? Or have you not decided that yet? I mean, it's a big, under, have you said to me before, it's a big undertaking to say, I'm going to write a novel. That's a big deal. With other, uh, other you know, things on your, you know, taking up your time. But what are you thinking about? The thing about writing a novel is you need time, you need space, you need headspace. And what you don't need are loads of other projects. Because every other project diverts energy and attention away for this huge thing that can only sustain itself with energy and attention. Sure. And I'm really up for that. It's just arranging my life in such a way so as to facilitate it. Because I actually can't afford to spend maybe the rest of the year working in something that might or might not make me a, an undisclosed sum at some point in the future. Sure. You know, because, yeah, yeah. you know, they might want to publish it and I've got two kids so you sometimes might need to go right I'm going to take that commission and be a bit more nimble but as soon as I get the chance to clear room enough to write a novel I can see the book that wants to come out I can see it there um, so that's half the battle yeah absolutely half the battle and uh, I mean over the 10 years since uh, Pac-Man you've, you've been busy it's not like you've just been uh, do, you know you were as you mentioned, you were involved in the run-up to the independence referendum. There was a lot of uh, work that you did there, and uh, you've done a lot of theatre work. Let's talk about, about the theatre work you've done. You mentioned Moira briefly, and uh, I've seen Moira monologues more than once. It's a fantastic show, but you've done loads. Aye, there, there have been a few. There's been a new play every year since 2009, at least one, sometimes maybe two. I think one gives the um, I've always tried to keep producing new work um, and it's been a, a real joy to be honest I've loved working in theatre but there's two things one theatres are shut yeah yeah they're shut for a while and they're going to be shut for a while and nobody yeah. knows when they're coming back and nobody knows what the industry is going to look like when we all come back if we all come back because you think at the amount of actors and directors and stagehands and technicians and costume designers and all these folk that make theatre happen, and there's no theatre, they've all had to go and find other jobs. So when theatres reopen again, are they going to be able to just walk straight back into those jobs? No, because they're, they're, they're making their money doing something else. Yeah. So the whole industry's in shock, to be honest. Um, so I thought, well, if ever there's a time for me to go back to writing novels, this is probably it. Um, because a book, you know, you didn't you didn't require a physical audience out there at an event in order to be able to make it work, you know. So um, that's what that's the reason why I'm not writing plays just now. 
I've still got a couple of play ideas, um, but the, the the last ten years it's been there's been loads of plays that I've had so much fun doing. I've I've really I will see. In fact, you know what? I hope we'll come back to that at some point. I'm not saying that's me and theatre done. No, I no. just have to be realistic about when it's coming back. Sure. And uh, you also have done uh, a bit of presenting. I was watching Burns on Burns Night the other night. Now, is, is that something you've quite enjoyed doing? Aye, aye, I did enjoy doing it. Again, being a TV presenter isn't something I've ever really done before. I did a brief thing um, around about the time Irvin Wells released Skag Boys. Yeah. Um, the Culture Show did a, a segment on it. And I interviewed Irvin, so that involved doing a wee bit of the camera work. But that was that was a fairly limited thing. Um, but this was a whole hour-long documentary about a subject that, quite frankly, I didn't know inside out. Yeah. Uh, I like Robert Burns as much as the next person. I know I know I know Burns's greatest hits in the same way know the greatest hits of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. But I didn't know the Rolling Stones album tracks and B-sides and, and all these kind of things. But in order to present this show about Burns, I had to go that deeply and I learned so much about him and about Scotland and about all sorts of things. And we spoke to so many really interesting people who had really interesting takes on Burns and went to all the locations that were that mattered, you know, Alloway Kirk and, you know, the Burns Cottage and, you know, the, the, the places that he haunted in Edinburgh and uh, Dumfrieshire and all that. It was great. It was great. I loved it. I really loved it. Uh, you think you might do more of that if you were asked? If I was asked, aye. Yeah. aye. I, I did pitch to them an idea about doing one on um, that Rebel Inc. movement in the 90s. You know, when tra- that gave birth to Trainspotting, but involved so many great writers. Oh, and was so amazing, exciting. yeah. You'll remember. Um, I, I'd love to do a documentary about that one day. They were like the creation records of Scottish literature. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of, uh, of uh, describing them. And it, it, it was a time when you were buying books in record shops, maybe for the first time as well. You were buying their books in record shops, which was a, a fantastic way of discovering both. Aye. It was amazing, an amazing thing for Scottish literature because your average punter who maybe didn't buy literary fiction, maybe didn't even buy books at all very often, was reading these books set in contemporary Scotland. You know what I mean? That That's astonishing. It's it's incredible to think, but I remember... The something... crime. The Warney crime. That's yeah, the key. Well, that's it. Well, at the time, I don't think... Yeah, I don't think crime was the big deal that it became. Really, uh, there was a few people, you know, but like the Wasp Factory and then Re- the Rebel Ink books and stuff, people were buying them in FOP and in HMV and, and right. you know, and all of that stuff. Morgan Carr. Yeah. I mean, Morgan Carr was another one. You know, it wasn't just trade sport and there was a lot happening. Really about that. And then Kelman won the Booker Prize around about that time. And he was sort of like, I always look at it, if, if Britpop was um, the, that moment, that Rebel Ink moment, right? Your Noel Gallagher figure is Irvin Welsh, but your Paul Weller is Kelman. <laughs> the and Godfather. The Britpop summoned back Paul Weller. Kelman was the sort of the Godfather of all that. And, you know, Alistair Gray and Janice Galloway were, were writing great stuff. They were slightly for the previous generation, but they were, they were doing great stuff in the 90s. It was... See, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here as the writer that, you know, led to the books that I've written. I just I'm wouldn't not sure we would be talking to each other if that hadn't happened. I, I think it, it, neither of us would have kind of followed the interest that we have if it wasn't for what happened at that period. 
And we're, do you know what? We're actually still seeing the influence of that in Scottish literature. Because Jenny Fagan, Chris McQueer, Graham Armstrong, all these writers would freely admit their influences yeah. have come for, for that moment as well. And other places, obviously. Yeah. But that was, that's, we're still feeling the ripple effects of that. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And how have you, I mean, having been on, for want of a better word, the sidelines, how have you looked at kind of Scottish writing over the last 10 years? Um, well, it's never really been in a bad shape. No. Um, but there, there was a certain trend. I don't even want to call it a trend because, you know, I, I didn't mean any disrespect to, to these writers because a lot of them are very good writers. Yeah. Um, but crime fiction became so synonymous with Scottish writing. I was having conversations with Scottish literary writers who were like, I think I'm going to have to write a crime novel. Yeah, me too. It was all anybody wanted for them. Yeah. You know, you're a Scottish writer, write as a crime novel. Now, that's no Ian Rankin's fault. That's no Val McDermott's fault. That's no Denise Miner's fault. They're just, they're good writers writing about a genre that they care about for a readership who care about that genre. Absolutely. Great writers, yeah. So there's no blame attached to anybody. And it's just the way that the publishing machine works. If something's commercial, they want more of that. Um, But it did mean that Scottish writers who weren't doing that, it was much harder for them to find an audience. Uh, the attention went away for this radical experimental energy in Scottish literature in the, the 80s and 90s to a much more uh, generic and easily commodified kind of writing uh, in the early part of the, the 21st century. Um, but I think it's swung back again because the another generation has picked up on the energy of what happened in the 90s and has run with it, the writers I was mentioning earlier, you know, uh, Chris McQueer. Uh, Billy Letford, uh, Jenny Fagan, um, Kerry Hudson, you know, there's 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 a, an energy in Scottish literature again that is prepared to take risks and, and break conventions again and be a bit more confrontational about, about their writing. And it works. Yeah. It works. You know, so which, which opens up space for everybody else. And Shuggy Bain, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, that's, you, you can only, you look at the turn of the tide right there. It's been a long time since a, a Scottish novel about working class people, since Trainspotting, since a, a Scottish novel about working class people has achieved that level of uh, international visibility. So uh, Scottish literature is in a pretty good place, I would say just now. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's the perfect time for you to return, as you have. <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a certain Kirsten Innes. Who, well, of course, uh, as we know, yes. Whose time is now... Uh, and I, and I, uh, I'm, I would, I would actually, in, in a lot of ways, see if she was, because uh, she is thriving. Um, but if it came to it and it was like I had to stop writing in order for her to to write, she has got such momentum and energy the now that I would quite happily just be like, honey, I'm watch the kids for a couple of years, go, go. Um, so I, that's been a joy. I must admit, that's been a joy watching her soar. Absolutely. I mean, and. Scabby Queen was so many people's favourite novels of, of last year. You know, since... I can remember. Do you know one of the, the, the happiest memories I've got um, is she'd been working on Scabby Queen for quite a long time, obviously. Um, well, about a year. And she had a deadline. Her, her second child was due. And she was determined that to get this book finished before the baby came along. Because two kids, a toddler and a newborn baby, there's no way you're writing a novel. Forget it. Right, yeah. she was racing for the finish line, and she got it done, and she gave it to me to read to get my 
uh, opinion on it. And nobody else had read it. And we went for lunch in Glasgow and we sat down with it and she's like, what did you think? And I was like, honey, it's a fucking masterpiece. You know, I thought I was good. I had the pen ready. You know what I mean? Well, maybe thinking about changing this and, you know, look, that's what she wanted for me. Yeah. I was like, it's fine. It's fine. Publish. Print. Print. You know, I knew what she had. I knew what she had. And if anyone listening has missed it, we did a podcast with Kirsten uh, last year, which is still available, which you should all go and check out and hear her talking about um, Scabby Queen. Fantastic. Alan, it's been so great to catch up with you. I've really enjoyed it. You too, mate. Oh, it's been brilliant. I, I could, to be quite honest with you, Alistair, I could quite happily do this for our three years, mate. <laughs> I realise that's probably not what the listeners want. And, you know, you, the director's the, cut. The director's <laughs> Maybe The DVD extras. What I will say, like, honestly, it was so enjoyable to read Lazy Susan because for me it was like catching up with an old pal because immediately it sounded like you're writing because as you say, you start with a voice and the voice is your voice, even though... You know, it's somebody else. There's there's an Alan Bissett thing that runs through all your characters, I think. Oh, that's good. Aye. Well, you'd hope so. I mean, you can't escape yourself. No. You know, you, you, you produce certain effects every time you write. Um, so that, that that's nice. That's nice. I'm glad to hear that. It's been great to catch up with you again. And with all being well, you'll hear a couple of readings from Lazy Susan after we have signed off uh, our conversation. But in the meantime... Great to see you. You too, mate. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. So uh, there are two voices in Lazy Susan. The first one and the main one is Susan herself, who speaks first person straight to the reader. But there is another voice that comes in every so often, no very often, who has a third person narrator who I can only really describe as the voice of God, who is observing things from afar. And this is that voice. She takes the heat out of the situation. She does so with a land, wit and precision, for this is our heroine, Susan Quinn Martin, whom we watch from afar. Born July 13th, 1997, when the number one song in the UK was Do You Know What I Mean by Oasis, the hotly anticipated lead single from their then forthcoming album, Be Here Now, which would become the fastest selling album in UK chart history up to that point. Six weeks later, when Susan's mother was already deciding she'd made a terrible mistake keeping the baby against the advice from her own mother, Lady Diana Spencer, the Princess of Wales, mother to a future King of Great Britain and wife to another, would die in an automobile accident in Paris, sparking an unprecedented wave of public mourning in the UK. To Susan, Princess Diana is just some past member of the royal family who is now dead. She has also never heard Be Here Now by Oasis. She has no knowledge of Princess Diana or opinions of her, or an oasis. In the summer of 1997, Britain's first Labour Prime Minister for 18 years, Tony Blair, was elected by a landslide majority. Susan doesn't know who Tony Blair is. The past is not something she ever likes to think about or ask about. It is not something her mother ever really spoke to her about, as it would raise too many uncomfortable questions. Who, for example, was Susan's father? And so throughout Susan's dreams, the past swims like a grinning shark, 
occasionally breaking the surface. Susan Q. Martin, 22 years old in the summer of 2019, once existed as a single zygote cell, an egg fertilized in the ampulla of her mother's fallopian tubes by one of 120,786,023 sperm released in the ejaculate of a nameless man around the back of Flick's nightclub in Brechin. That particular sperm was carrying a Y chromosome. Almost every combination of experiences which a female of the species Homo sapiens, the trillions and trillions of different paths a human child could take, and then as an adolescent, and then as an adult human female, were created in that moment, like an atom splitting, generating an enormous profusion of heat, or a universe being born in a big bang, sending gas and matter hurtling away from itself at the speed of light, or parallel dimensions colliding, making an infinite number of space-time continuums ripple off from this cataclysm. The zygote cell divided and divided again and divided again. A tiny beating heart gradually formed, then vestigial limbs and a head and black outsized eyes. As the brain developed, a consciousness formed, a writhing invisible mass of thought and emotion and sensation, which over two decades would settle into a navigable mass of impulses and neural links, which take the form of a social code and a decision-making process. It is the refinement of this consciousness, the accumulated experiences of this human female, the learned pattern of her actions and her reactions, which results in a certain sensitivity, an attuned way of feeling, a subjectivity expanded by Susan's various experiments with chemical substances, which allows her to resolve this tense situation on the train. It could have gone so differently. If the wrong neural pathway had been triggered, if a tiny electrical crackling had resulted in that action rather than this one, if the zygote had been formed by an ovum and an X chromosome, or if Susan's mother had walked left rather than right when she had emerged from the entrance of Flick's nightclub that autumn night in 1996, everything would have been altered. Reality would have taken on a different shape and the vast swarming consciousness, which is the human race on this earth, latticed by an infinity of individual actions, would have been closer to or further from God somehow. Move to your pre-booked seat on the train, Susan. Turn to page 54. Rule one, you didn't get to shag me, or even touch me. You might get a cuddle sometimes, because I like cuddles. <laughs> Maybe the odd high five if a good tune comes on. But that's it. You've got a girlfriend, and I respect that. So you respect it too. It's not to say you'll never get to see me in my knickers, I mean, we'll be sharing a room. But didn't get handsy. I'm the best company you'll ever have. So appreciate that and do not wreck it by trying to fire into me. I'm no your whore. And if you act like that, it'll just prove you know the sound cunt I first thought you were. In fact, if your missus phones me up and says, hey, have you been shagging my so-and-so? I can say, hen, he's never even laid a finger on me. And it'll be true. And she'll ken it to be true, because woman, I was ken.
I'll say, hi. We've spent some time together, but we're just pals. And he's been a perfect gentleman. Not once made a move on me. Talks about you in glowing terms, hen. That's a man that loves you right there. See the favour I'm doing you now, because we sound cunts look out for either sound cunts. Rule two. <laughs> I am skinderoonie, so you need to understand that you'll be paying for everything. I'll put my hand in my pocket every so often, if you'll let me. But I'm not going to be the one who's going to splash you on hotel rooms or drugs or train tickets or champagne or spa sessions. I'll shout around or two, and I didn't mind removing for you all the hassle of having to source the drugs. I ken plenty guys. There's dealers observe my rules too. You sunshine, just pay for them. Then tack us somewhere beautiful to hoover up that loveliness. The bright side for you is you get to spend a weekend with this gorgeous bit of stuff. Every cunt in the bar jealous as fuck you can it. And also, you can tell me on him. On him. I'm not here to judge, pal. You're with me to be completely yourself. A wife of your wife, or your wains, or your job. You are a duty. We are free human beings. Let's just tuck some good drugs, listen to good music, and talk pish for hours and hours. But we are sound cunts being sound. Nobody's getting used. And if you kinda see that, then it's probably because you're an actual bona fide boring cunt deep doon. But still, having a wank in front of a lady. William, I says, just calm it, eh? We're not here for that. Put the porn off and let's just chill. Aye, Susie, he says, rubbing his nose and twitching. Stuffing his hard on back into his bathrobe. Sorry about that, hen. Let's just enjoy the music.